Okay. Welcome, everyone, to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety Law Group here at Wright, Constable & Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. As you know, the Surety Today is designed to keep the busy claims professional up to date and informed on surety industry issues wherever you are. If you have a phone, you can call in. If you missed a presentation, you can listen to a recording at three different locations, our website, wcslaw.com, as a podcast at podbean.com, Surety Today, and on our microsite at uh, suretytoday.net. Uh, you can also read a transcript of this presentation on the um, WCS website or the Surety Today microsite. The program is offered only to in-house claims professionals, and we appreciate uh, your support and ask that you pass along our contact information to any colleagues uh, who you think may be interested in calling in in the future. Uh, we also ask that you like or share our um, Surety Today posts on LinkedIn and Twitter. If you have any suggestions for topics or improvements, please let us know. If you have any technical issues during the call, please contact Ms. Jeannie Hyatt by email at jhyatt, H-Y-A-T-T, at wcslaw.com. Uh, as always, we've muted the line during the presentation to avoid the background noise, and we will unmute at the end for any questions. Uh, today, I'm coming to you injured. About a week ago, I was washing dishes and I cut my thumb and I went to one of those, uh, you know, urgent care places that are popping up all over the place and they said, oh, it's too deep and bloody, you got to go to the hospital. So I went to the hospital and during the intake, the nurse says, when was the last time you were at the hospital? And I said, I had to think about it because it's been a while. Well, it turns out it was 27 years ago. And, and at that time, the reason I went to the hospital is because I cut my hand washing dishes. So I got my stitches. I went home and I said to my wife, look, washing dishes is hazardous to my health. I'm not going to be able to do it anymore. She laughed and she said she could live with me getting injured every 27 years as long as I kept doing the dishes. So, you know, it's important in any relationship that you know where you stand. And apparently I stand uh, right behind the dirty dishes. So, But that's okay. We've been married over 30 years. You know how it is. So today we're going to talk about the, uh, the surety and the pay if paid and pay when paid clauses. Most uh, bonds condition payment to a claimant on the phrase, all sums justly due. Under the terms of the pay if paid or pay when paid clause in the underlying bonded contract, the principal is not required to pay a subcontractor or supplier unless or until the general contractor or owner pays the principal. Thus, in the absence of payment from the owner or general contractor, no sums are justly due to the lower-tier contractors from the principal. This is the agreed-upon contractual term. Why, then, can a surety not rely on the terms of the contract, and instead, the surety is often forced to pay a claimant even in the absence of payment from the owner or general contractor? So we'll explore this issue today. Thanks for joining me, and let's get started. So in a typical construction scenario, you know, you've got the owner and the owner contracts with the general contractor and the general contractor then contracts with various subcontractors and suppliers and so on down the chain to the lower tiers. In the absence of any contractual language or statutory provision to the contrary, the general contractor bears the risk of non-payment from the owner. So for example, if the owner fails to pay through no fault of the subcontractor, the general contractor still remains liable to its subcontractor to pay for the work performed. Contingent payment clauses like pay when paid and pay if paid typically provide that the contractor is not required to make payment to the subcontractor 
unless or until the contractor has received payment from the owner. Such clauses are utilized in subcontracts in an effort to prevent the general contractor from being required to pay the subcontractor before receiving payment for their work from the owner, thus changing the traditional allocation of the risk of non-payment by the owner from the general contractor down to the subcontractors and or lower tiers. Numerous jurisdictions have addressed such clauses as to their enforceability between the contracting parties with varying results. Some uphold such clauses, others reject them, still others have enacted laws or statutes addressing such clauses. In addition, numerous jurisdictions have considered whether pay when paid and or pay if paid clauses provide a valid defense to a surety in response to a payment bond claim. In some jurisdictions, the courts have reached conflicting results. So, for example, a state like Virginia, they've upheld the enforceability of a contingent payment clause as between the general contractor and the subcontractor, but they proclaim that a surety cannot rely on a contingent payment clause as a defense to the payment bond claim. In other jurisdictions, the results are consistent with courts holding that the contingent payment clauses are enforceable for the surety and its principal or denying such clauses for both. Given the varying and seemingly anomalous treatment of such clauses, I thought it would be a good topic for discussion today. So let's get started by defining uh, what a pay when paid and a pay if paid clause is and how they are different and why they are treated differently. First, it bears remembering that many courts over the years uh, have mistakenly referred to these, these two types of contingent payment clauses interchangeably or have confused them, which has created a great deal of difficulty in interpreting various decisions. Accordingly, when you're looking at case law on this issue, you really have to go into the decision and find the clause that is being discussed and review it to determine if the decision is really talking about a pay when paid or pay if paid clause. Oftentimes, the decision will appear to stand for one proposition, but when you look at the clause the court was dealing with, you realize the case doesn't really stand for what it appears. And there's some good, dis good um, discussions out there in, in some of the cases where the courts have really honed in on this issue and have really you know, said, look, everybody's citing this case for this proposition, but when you go and look at the cases it relied on, you know, they're not, they're not pay if paid clauses, they're pay when paid clauses. So uh, you just got to be aware of that and, and careful of that. So what is a pay when paid clause? A pay when paid clause governs the timing of a contractor's payment obligation to the subcontractor, usually by indicating that the subcontractor will be paid within some fixed time uh, after the contractor itself is paid by the owner. So a typical clause of this type might read, uh, quote, contractor shall pay the subcontractor within seven days of contractor's receipt of payment from the owner. Thus, generally, if a contingent payment provision simply requires the contractor to pay the subcontractor upon receipt of payment from the owner or some similar language, the clause will be considered to be a pay-when-paid clause that merely acts as a timing mechanism. The clause does not expressly excuse a contractor's ultimate liability if it does not receive payment from the owner. So the clause does not transfer the risk of non-payment from the contractor to the subcontractor and on down the chain. With, with such a clause, if the owner, for example, were to fail to pay, the general contractor would still be obligated to pay the subcontractor. 
As noted by one court, pay-when-paid provisions have been construed by the courts on numerous occasions to simply provide that the contractor um, with a reasonable time within which to obtain payment from the owner and to make payment to the subcontractor. Without express language clearly indicating an intent to shift the risk of non-payment from the owner to the subcontractor, courts will not typically construe pay-when-paid clauses as excusing the payment obligation of the general contractor. One court noted these clauses are most often construed simply as affecting the timing of payments that the general contractor is required to make regardless of whether the owner performs or not. So when you're dealing with a, a pay-when-paid clause, the question invariably becomes, well, what is a reasonable time in which to make payment? And, of course, the, you know, the cases are all over the map on this. The, um, the measure of a reasonable time for a contractor to withhold payment to its subcontractor while it's seeking payment from the owner will vary from case to case. Uh, in one um, Louisiana court, the court held that a 22-month delay was too long. Uh, in another case out of the Eighth Circuit, the court felt that, um, that, a, that a contractor could reasonably make its subcontractor wait three months. So the question of reasonableness will be determined on a case-by-case basis, so there's no uh, hard and fast rule. Because pay-when-pay clauses do not entirely preclude payment from the general contractor to the subcontractor, such clauses are generally held to be enforceable as between the general contractor and subcontractor. So let's look at what is a pay-if-paid clause. In contrast, a pay-if-paid clause, as the name suggests, provides that a subcontractor will be paid only if the contractor is paid. The intent of this type of clause is that if the owner does not pay the general contractor, the general contractor is not required to pay the sub. A typical clause of this type might say, quote, Contractors' receipt of payment from the owner is a condition precedent to contractors' obligation to make payment to the subcontractor. The subcontractor expressly assumes the risk of the owner's non-payment, and the subcontract price includes that risk. Thus, the key distinction between a pay-when-paid and a pay-if-paid provision is the use of unequivocal language showing that payment from the owner is a condition precedent to the contractor's obligation to pay the claimant and that the risk of the owner's non-payment has been shifted down from the general contractor to the subcontractor. Now, a condition payment is a legal term, meaning uh, a term of art, meaning an act or event other than a lapse of time that must exist or occur before a duty to perform something promised arises. The Maryland Court of Appeals, that definition is straight out of uh, Black's Law Dictionary. The Maryland Court of Appeals similarly defines a condition precedent as a fact other than than mere lapse of time, which unless excused, must exist or occur before a duty of immediate performance of a promise arises. The question whether a stipulation in a contract constitutes a condition precedent is one of interpretation depending on the intent of the parties to be gathered from the words they have employed and in case of ambiguity have to resort to other permissible aids of interpretation. Although no particular form of words is necessary in order to create and express condition precedent, such words and phrases as if, provided that, when, after, as soon as, or subject to have been held to commonly indicate that performance has expressly been made conditional. To determine whether the subcontract language is properly construed as a pay-if-pay clause, the condition precedent language must clearly and unambiguously on its face demonstrate the party's intent to shift the risk of non-payment to the subcontractor so that, we'd be, so that it would be clear to the subcontractor 
that it would not be paid unless the contractor was paid. This express clarity is required because conditions precedent are generally not favored and courts will tend not to construe stipulations to be a condition precedent, especially when the construction would result in a forfeiture. Thus, the general rule is that if there is any ambiguity, a contingent payment clause will be construed as a timing provision rather than a condition precedent to payment. For example, the Virginia courts will not enforce contingent payment clauses if there is an ambiguity in the contract, which exists when the language is of doubtful import, admits of being understood in more than one way, admits of two or more meanings, or refers to two or more things at the same time. So So what are some actual examples of a valid pay of paid clause? In Louisiana, a court held that the following language constituted a valid pay of paid provision. Quote, the subcontractor shall not be entitled to receive any progress payment or final payment prior to contractor's actual receipt of, the, of that payment from the owner. Subcontractor agrees that contractor's actual receipt of full payment from the owner shall be a condition precedent to the bringing of any action by subcontractor hereof against contractor or its surety, if any, relating to the contractor's failure to make payment. Similarly, a Maryland court found the following language to sufficiently create a pay-of-pay clause. Quote, it is specifically understood and agreed that the payment to the trade contractor is dependent as a condition precedent upon the construction manager receiving contract payments, including retainer from the owner, unquote. So you see what in drafting these provisions, the drafters of these contracts are really trying to make it abundantly clear that this is a condition precedent, that this is a, this is, this is a term that has to be be fulfilled before there's any obligation to make payment. Uh, Some courts have taken the position that to create a pay-of-pay clause, the provision must expressly use specific language or terms to state that the risk of non-payment is being shifted and that the subcontractor will not be paid unless the owner pays the general. The decision of the Sixth Circuit in Thomas J. Dyer uh, versus Bishop International Engineering Company um, that's a, let's see, it looks like 1962 decision, uh, has been often cited for this proposition, and some courts argue miscited for that proposition. The majority of courts do not follow the dire approach and will treat normal condition precedent language sufficient to create a pay-if-paid provision. And a good case to, uh, to look at on that issue is BMD Contractors, Inc. versus Fidelity and Deposit Company of Maryland, 679 F. 3rd, 643, uh, out of the Seventh Circuit, 2012. So let's look at the issue of can the surety rely on a contingent payment clause as a defense to a payment bond claim. So, of course, case law is clear that a surety is entitled to assert the defenses of its principle and that a surety's liability can be extended no further than the principle's. Courts have long held that the surety stands in the shoes of the principal contractor and therefore has the right generally to assert any defense which its principal might assert if sued. Moreover, the natural limit of the obligation of the surety is to be found in the obligation of the principal, i.e. the the subcontract or or the contract with the owner. The underpinning of this maxim is that a surety's liability is derivative of the principal's obligation. The surety's obligation is derived from its principle and the liability of the surety is measured by the liability of the principle. 
Thus, under traditional suretyship jurisprudence, a surety should be entitled to rely on a contingent payment provision like a pay if paid or pay when paid clause to the same extent as its principal. And most courts will allow reliance on a pay when paid provision by a surety and hold that payment of a payment bond claim must be made in a reasonable time. However, the jurisdictions are split on whether a surety may be allowed to assert a pay if paid provision as a defense to a payment bond claim. So let's take a look at you know, the jurisdictions that do, um, that do allow the surety to assert pay if paid as a defense. Numerous courts have held that a surety may assert the pay if paid clause in the principal's contract with the subcontractor as a defense to a payment bond claim if the conditions giving rise to that defense exist. In so doing, some courts reason that the bond or the statute generally requires the claimant to show, as we discussed, that there has been a default and that a sum is in fact justly due for labor and materials before the surety is obligated to pay. It therefore follows that no sum is justly due and there is no default if the contractor has a valid pay when paid or pay if paid defense. Other courts in upholding a pay if paid clause in favor of a surety have reasoned that the surety's liability can be no greater than that of its principal. In other words, the principal is not liable, neither should the surety be. In the uh, BND contractor's case we talked about a minute ago there, the, the Seventh Circuit, in holding that the surety was entitled to a pay of pay defense, noted that sureties are generally liable only when the principal itself is liable and concurrently executed bonds and contracts that they secure should be construed together of chief importance to the court was the proposition that the surety is only liable if the principal is liable. And the court further noted that the purpose of the payment bond is to ensure subcontractors against non-payment when payment is in fact due under the relevant subcontract. Similarly, a federal court in New Jersey pointed to the unique nature of suretyship, noting that a surety's liability is triggered only when the principal's debt matures. The court further noted that freedom of contract permits a shifting of the risk of non-payment to subcontractors when clearly bargained for. The decisions permitting a surety to assert a pay-if-paid defense are rooted in the observance of the nature of suretyship and a strict enforcement of the bonded contract terms pursuant to the freedom of contract principles. So let's take a look at these, uh, these cases that, that do not allow the surety to assert the defense. Um, and and in, in, this, in these cases, there's a variety of reasons that you'll see that arise. Um, and, and so sometimes the courts, you know, will pick and choose one or two of these, or sometimes they'll do them all. But um, so some courts, uh, they, they rely on a sort of public policy, fairness, equity analysis, and they say, you know, the issue of enforceability of a pay-of-pay clause, um, you know, uh, depends on this concept of fairness and equity. The courts reason that the general contractor has a direct contractual relationship with the owner and has more control over ensuring that payment is received for services performed. The general contractor also controls the entire project and is in the best position to resolve disputes that might relate to the owner's refusal to pay. Further, generally speaking, a general contractor is better able to bear the risk of non-payment than a subcontractor. This is so because subcontractors are typically smaller with less capital than general contractors. As a consequence, subcontractors are not well equipped to incur the credit risk of an insolvent or unwilling owner. And so some courts will, will point to that as a justification or use that as, as another reason for refusing to enforce on public policy grounds. 
Um, another is the, is the violation of, of statutory purpose. So various courts have disallowed a surety from invoking pay-of-pay provisions because to do so, the courts believe, would defeat the alleged purpose of a governing statute. So there, there was a case out of Louisiana where the court stated, the application of traditional suretyship law principles in this scenario is contrary to the Public's Work Act. Uh, to its avowed purpose of providing a source of security to those performing work and furnishing materials on public projects. Because the contractual provisions on which the surety relies is contrary to the purpose of the Public Works Act, we hold that the surety may not assert the pay if paid provisions of the principal subcontract to defeat its liability to pay subcontractors pursuant to the terms of the statutory bond. Many other uh, decisions cite a conflict between pay-of-pay clauses and their jurisdiction's um, prohibition on lien waivers. Uh, and, and so, for example, in um, William R. Clark Corp. versus Safeco uh, out of California, the subcontract contained a clear pay-of-pay provision which stated that regardless of the reasons for the owner's nonpayment, whether attributable to the fault of the owner, contractor, or subcontractor, the owner's payment was a condition precedent to the contractor's obligation to pay the subcontractor. Safeco issued a payment bond for the project. The owner became insolvent, failed to pay the GC, and the GC refused to pay its subcontractors relying on the pay of paid clause. Subcontractors then filed mechanics liens and uh, also a claim against the payment bond. Safeco defended on the grounds that as a surety was entitled to rely on the defenses of its principal and that the pay of paid provision was in play. California Supreme Court rejected the surety's argument and the freedom to contract policy on which it was grounded because the court, to believe, the court believed that to enforce the clause would undermine the strong state policy of preserving mechanics lien rights uh, to those who supply labor and materials for the improvement of the property. The court stated, quote, we may agree with Safeco that a pay of pay provision is not precisely a waiver of mechanics lien rights and yet conclude that a pay-of-paid provision is void because it violates the public policy that underlies the anti-waiver provisions of the mechanics lien laws. The legislature's carefully articulated anti-waiver scheme would amount to little if parties to construction contracts could circumvent it by means of pay-of-paid provisions having effects indistinguishable from waivers prohibited under the California law." Unquote. So uh, one of the other Area, one of the other grounds or bases that the courts will point to to, um, to um, prohibit the use of a pay-of-pay defense is uh, contractual provision. So in addition to the public policy argument, some courts prohibit a surety from asserting a pay-of-pay provision on alleged contractual grounds. For example, the Supreme Court of Alabama noted that while the underlying contract contained a contingent payment clause, the payment bond and the subcontract are separate contracts, and neither references nor incorporates the terms of the other. More specifically, the payment bond does not condition payment to the claimant on the owner's making a final payment to the principal. A court in Massachusetts refused to allow a surety to assert a defense stating that the payment bond itself did not reference or incorporate any conditional payment language. Similarly, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals interpreting Virginia law, stated that a surety could utilize a pay-of-pay defense only if such condition precedent was expressly stated in its bond. At least one court has taken the dangerous position that the surety's obligation under the payment bond to a claimant is an independent promise, 
such that the surety can be liable even if the principal is not liable. Thus, under the terms of the payment bond, when the surety is unqualifiedly obligated to pay, when the principal fails to pay, the surety was held to be liable even if the principal was not obligated to pay. Of course, this approach completely ignores established surety law and the well-recognized purpose of a payment bond. One of the other grounds that um, the courts uh, you'll find are used to deny a pay of paid is by state statutes. So there are several states that have enacted statutes providing that uh, contingent payment clauses are void or unenforceable. These statutes sometimes prohibit such clauses entirely and sometimes only prevent pay of paid provisions from abrogating the right of a, or the right to uh, make a bond claim or a lien claim. A Massachusetts statute provides that a pay of paid clause is not enforceable by the surety on private construction projects except when the claimant's defective performance caused or contributed to the non-payment by the owner. Some state statutes state that a contingent payment clause is ineffective as a waiver of a lien or a bond right. And then you see Maryland has a statute like that, Georgia, uh, Illinois, Utah, for example. Under Florida law, they, they, they took a different approach. Under Florida law, a contingent payment provision may be enforceable by a surety if the bond is listed in the notice of commencement for the project as a conditional payment bond and is recorded together with the notice of commencement for the project prior to commencement of the project. And the words conditional payment bond are contained in the title of the bond at the top of the front page. And the bond contains on the front page in at least 10-point type this statement about how it's a uh, you know it's it's contingent and you may not get paid and all this kind of stuff. So that's the Florida approach to to uh, dealing with pay of pay clauses. So let's look at the we we're talking about the states, but let's look at the federal uh, side under the Miller Act. As a general rule, federal courts have rejected the surety's attempt to enforce a contingent payment clause against the subcontractor on grounds that the clause is effectively an implied waiver of the subcontractor's Miller Act rights. Implied waivers are unenforceable under the Miller Act. In fact, the Miller Act specifically provides that a subcontractor's waiver of its rights to sue on a payment bond is void unless it is in writing, signed, and executed after the subcontractor has already finished the labor of materials under the con furnished the labor and materials under the contract. Thus, a contract provision that would deny the subcontractor its uh, Miller Act remedy cannot be used as a defense. The court in U.S. versus Zurich American Insurance Company uh, out of the Eastern District of Pennsylvania in 2015 noted that on federal contracts, the principles and the surety's liability are only coextensive to the extent permitted by the terms of the Miller Act. The court further observed that the Miller Act gives a subcontractor the right to sue a payment bond surety based on the passage of time, not on the payment from the federal government to the prime contractor. So even if the contingent payment clause is um, you know, held to be enforceable in a particular jurisdiction, as a general matter, there still may be factual defenses to its application. Courts have recognized that the credit risk that an owner will be unable to pay is different from the risk of non-payment arising because of defenses to payment that the owner may possess. Such defenses of the owner would include untimely performance, poor workmanship, that kind of stuff. The general contractor is responsible for coordinating the work of its subcontractors and the overall performance of the project. Accordingly, many states recognize that if the general contractor or another contractor for whom the general contractor is responsible 
is the reason or cause that the owner is refusing to pay and the claiming subcontractor is without fault, the contingent, plan, uh, contingent payment clause may not be enforceable. In one case, the court applied the prevention doctrine to deny application of the pay if paid clause. In that case, the court found that the general contractor, through its own actions, contributed to the non-occurrence of the condition precedent, i.e. the non-payment by the owner. Under the prevention doctrine, if a, if a promisor hinders or prevents fulfillment of a condition to, to his performance, the condition may be waived or excused. Because the general contractor caused the owner's failure to pay, neither it nor its surety could rely on the pay-of-pay clause as a defense to the payment subcontractor. Okay, so there's, uh, there's uh, some good resources that I would point you to. And the first one is, is uh, really good. It was from the uh, Northeast Surety Fidelity Claims Conference in 2016. And um, it, what's good about this paper is that at the end of it, it has a chart where the authors had gone through and basically, uh, you know, they list every state and how the state has treated uh, the pay of paid uh, provisions as to sureties and points out, you know, where there's a statute involved and that kind of thing and where some states, uh, you know, just haven't, haven't addressed the issue at all. So that's a good, that's a good resource. You can, you can find that um, on the Forcon International website. It's titled The Continued Viability of the Pay of Paid Defense for the Surety. Again, that was uh, September 2016. And then the Southern Surety uh, Claims Conference had another paper um, uh, in 2017, just last year, in April, uh, Payment Bond Defenses, Pay When Paid, and Other Contractual Payment Terms and Contracts. So you can also find that on the Forcon site. Uh, I recommended the, um, uh, the BMD case to you. And also, uh, of course, uh, Bruner and O'Connor has a good discussion with a, a lot of citation to cases in the footnotes. So check out those resources if you want to know more about this topic. Okay, before I open up the line uh, for any questions, I wanted to let everyone know that the next edition of Surety Today will be on Monday, October 8, 2018 at 1230, and I will present on the topic of the surety and unions. Upcoming events in the uh, surety industry, Chicago Surety Claim Association lunch meeting will be held September 13th. Philadelphia Surety Claim Association lunch will be September 19th. Ms. Sandy Feltis will be speaking. The 29th Annual Northeast Surety Fidelity Claims Conference will be held at the Borgata Hotel in Atlantic City, uh, September 26th to the 29th. And, of course, we're a co-sponsor of that. Prior to the Northeast uh, on Tuesday, September 25th, uh, our firm and some other uh, sponsors of the Northeast will be hosting a dinner at the Barclay Prime Restaurant in Philadelphia. So let me know if, if you're going to be in the area and would like to attend. National Bond Claims uh, is going to hold its annual meeting, Pinehurst, North Carolina, October 10th through the 12th. <coughs> and uh, as I mentioned before, we're going to be starting this uh, surety today case notes, but uh, I'm, I'm having trouble getting that out the door, but we'll, we'll work on that, uh, which will be coming out by LinkedIn, Twitter, I don't know, maybe email. Okay, so let me uh, unmute the line. All right, so if there's any questions, now's the time. Okay, seeing no questions, thank you everybody for tuning in and uh, I'll talk to you next month. Thanks. Thank you, Mike.
Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. 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 Okay. Bye-bye.